0: Chapter 1, 1964 Negroes are continuously making progress here in this country. The progress in many areas is not as fast as it should be, but they are making progress and we will continue to make progress. There is prejudice now. There's no reason that in the future, in the foreseeable future, that a Negro could also be President of the United States. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy in a Voice of America broadcast, May 23rd, 1961 they keep saying i have all this trouble in the negro community and i've never heard a negro say that lyndon johnson told whitney young head of the national urban league during a brief telephone conversation on january 6 1964 the country was still reeling from the assassination of president john f kennedy who had been cut down in lbj's texas just two months earlier racial strife rippled across the south where black and white college students in carefully pressed and starched shirts and horn-rimmed glasses sat down at Woolworth's lunch counters, weathered women and men with sun-drawn faces lined up to register to vote, and young pastors and children with old souls met the whip and the hose and the stone wall of white resistance and hardened fealty to segregation. In two days, Johnson would be giving his first State of the Union address, and he was making a flurry of phone calls to gain support for a host of items. He was worrying over everything from a budget bill he was sending to the House to the elections later that year, when he would have to stand for president in his own right. Johnson also had to deal with his fellow Southerners in Congress who had signed the so-called Southern Manifesto, which was conceived in 1956 by Richard Russell of Georgia and Strom Thurmond of South Carolina and condemned the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education and which pledged to resist the desegregation of Southern schools by all lawful means. It had been signed by 19 Southern Democrats, all but the Tennessee delegation of Albert Gore Sr. and Estes Kefauver, and 77 members of the House of Representatives. Johnson thought these lawmakers were being bullheaded in the face of history's headwinds. He had watched as his predecessors, Dwight Eisenhower and John Kennedy, were drawn reluctantly into defending civic justice for black Americans, but he saw in this issue a legacy he could build for himself. The hard-scrabble Texan had an uneasy relationship with the specter of the fallen president in whose shadow he'd labored since 1960. And he was incensed that even as he contemplated a pair of recess appointments that would place two black men, Spotswood Robinson III and Aloysius Leon Higginbotham Jr. on the federal bench, Jet Magazine was questioning his commitment to the cause. Jet, The weekly Bible of black news since its founding in Chicago in 1951 was where African-Americans saw the gruesome pictures from the open casket containing the remains of lynched 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 and learned that a disturbed black woman named Isola Ware stabbed Martin Luther King Jr. with a letter opener in a Harlem department store in 1958. Now, jet readers were learning that Johnson had not been photographed with any black leaders since assuming the presidency. I want to appoint these judges, Johnson growled through the Oval Office telephone to Young, but I don't want to do it unless the whole Negro community knows that I'm doing it and the Democrats are doing it and this damn jet and the rest of them quit cutting us up and saying that I hate the Negroes. Young, along with other civil rights and labor leaders, including Roy Wilkins, the president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer of the Congress of Racial Equality and A. Philip Randolph had spent three years lobbying, cajoling, and negotiating with the Kennedy administration for a civil rights bill that would put teeth into the 14th and 15th Amendments and bring the South into full compliance with federal law and civilized modernity. Before that, in 1957, they'd pushed President Dwight Eisenhower to sign a civil rights bill, the first since Reconstruction to bring federal power to bear to protect the voting rights of African Americans in the South, and which established a civil rights commission and a civil rights division at the Department of Justice. The strategy is as simple as it is profound, journalist Theodore H. White wrote in 1956. It is to alter totally the patterns of Southern custom and life. It does no good, the leaders of the NAACP say almost to a man, to send a rescue party south or mourn a colored man murdered in Mississippi. But if the federal government guarantees the Negro the right to vote down south, everything changes. No outsider can do anything about a Negro-hating sheriff in Tallahatchie County. But if Negroes vote, they can change the sheriff.